Aloha, and welcome to another Candid Conversation. We're joined today by Alex Kraft, who this past week put the cat amongst the canaries with his blog on technicians. So we're going to have a, I think, a rather boisterous and exciting discussion this morning. Good day, Mr. Kraft. How are you? I'm excellent, Ron. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. So go for it. Why did you say what you said? Why did you write what you wrote? Uh, so way, I, I think you're right 100%, so don't be <laughs> Thank you. It was, uh, some would call it a Molotov cocktail thrown through the window. Uh, but look, it's true. Uh, it, it's we've we've had now I think four or five conversations uh, about different topics. This industry, for whatever reason, people want to continue just parroting these narratives that and act like they just don't know what could be behind it, you know. And so the one that I've been very passionate about for the last year or two years is, man, no, we can't find any technicians no one wants to be a technician it drives me crazy because it's a simple answer it's economics and i guarantee you if the pay structure was different all of a sudden there'd be a larger supply of people who want to be heavy duty diesel mechanics so why are we stuck with the wages that we are because uh the existing infrastructure doesn't want to pay people um that's, I mean, I'd love for someone to debate me on that, but, uh, and look, I understand, like I, I worked at a dealer for a long time. I ran a dealer. I understand the expense and the cost structure, but it, you can't sit there and continually say, Hey, no one wants to do this work when everyone acknowledges it's physically demanding. Uh, it's, it's difficult. They're, it's highly skilled labor. And then sit there at the end of the day and say, you know, why why can't we find people who want to do this work? And we pay $30 an hour, $35 an hour, <laughs> on the top end, $40 an hour. Like, come on, give me a break. We've got the same thing on the part side in a different direction. The the constant reduction in headcount sales mm -hmm. per employee in parts is is obscenely high. And it's all about driving profit. We we seem to be completely in the in the camp that we're the equipment people. Parts and services back there somewhere. Most of us don't understand it, uh, but we're just going to leave it the way it is, and we're in a rut. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up. I think people do understand it. I just think it's hard. And so that's why it doesn't get a lot. It, it, it is hard, you know, with parts and service, it's, there's a lot of logistics involved, a lot of expense. Like the reality is like, if I, if I hire a salesperson, uh, I don't really have much expense. You know, there's a low salary. Uh, it's mostly commission based and I put them out in a territory and they can sell a machine for $300,000 tomorrow in theory without really any training. Uh, and so I, I gain a huge return on that individual. So if I put out a technician, I have to supply the technician a $180,000 to $200,000 truck. I have to supply the technician with software. I have to supply the technician with certain training and tools and you know what the average work order is? I don't know, 
1500 bucks, 1800 bucks, 2000 bucks. It takes a lot of those work orders to equal one $300,000 sale. So I get it, but it's just, <laughs> we don't seem to have like the real conversation or the, as you term it, the candid conversation about what the true drivers are. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a, a remarkable occurrence. As we move forward and as technology changes and people like he bring the customer and the mechanic together in a different way, one of the other things we're stuck with at the OEM level, at the dealer level, is they don't want to work on anything other than their own brand. Mm -hmm. And that creates an obstacle for a lot of customers, which is, you know, market share and labor, if, if you're a really good dealer, might be as high as 25%. Mm -hmm. A lot of dealers, you know, are, are down around 10. Maintenance mm -hmm. is under five, uh, which tells us, you know, we, we charge too much. And the other side of that equation, which you're bringing up, is we pay too little. And as you say, we start out, okay, here's $200,000 for a truck and some tooling. And, you know, yeah. there you go. See ya. Uh, at least you're wearing my uniform. You know, and that looks like prison. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. The, the, um, the split in business in dealers, as you know, I've always been after having half of the business in parts and service, half in equipment. I'm I'm happy if I get <clears throat> to 60, 40, 60 equipment, 40 parts and service. And with that, <clears throat> I can make a fair amount of money. Mm -hmm. But when I'm looking at 20 to 25% parts and service, it's it's a struggle. And the leadership of dealers doesn't seem to want to change it. They're in a rut. I don't. Who, I don't. Uh, who is the leadership at dealers? Before people finally get it, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the the chat, the part of the issue is like, who is the leadership at the dealer? It's, I mean, mostly people who come up through the sales side of the business. Why is that? That's because the sales side of the business has the biggest dollar contribution. So those people typically get pr promoted, get on the fast track of everything. You know, who, who's the, you know, the executive VP, probably the the longest tenured ex salesperson at the dealership. I mean, so yeah. what are they, they're not going to just, they're, they're going to focus on what they've been focused on the last 20 years. Like, I, I don't know very many dealers who the, pre, where the president or like the upper, upper tier management has a parts of service background. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's almost gone. My the first dealership I worked for, the president was a mechanic at one time, but uh, he 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 got things done, you know. It, mm -hmm. uh, and and we were very progressive. Then when I went out to British Columbia, it was co-executive VPs, the vice president of parts and service, and the vice president of finance together were both executive VPs. Of course, the president was a sales guy. Mm -hmm. So it, it was it was an interesting troika, but as I go around different dealerships and work in different dealerships, the number that is driven by parts and service is very small. And I don't know whether it's to your point or whether it's just the manufacturer influencing that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, another narrative <laughs> is that everybody's always talking about how important parts and service is. 
oh, you know, and I write about it too. Like, throw in your cliche. Well, we're a, we're really a customer support company that happens to sell machines. Okay, name me three things that you focus on <laughs> that are the cornerstones of your product support. But like, there's nothing. There's nothing behind it. You know. And, so. And 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 yet, if you're truly a financial dog, and you look at the Dupont model, which has been around for fifty years, more than that, the number one issue in a dealership, the number one metric we should be paying attention to is gross profit percentage. Uh-huh. And what drives that? Parts and service. It does. The next one is return on assets. And what drives that? Parts and service. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. So shift, shifting gears, take me over to Heave. You're, you're in Florida. You're in Texas. Where else are you now? Uh, we've, you know, we've fixed machines in six different states. Like we're we're in Indianapolis. Uh, we've fixed some machines in some other markets like Louisiana, even Wisconsin. But I, I wouldn't like we're really focused on Texas and Florida at the moment. Like we've. We've helped existing customers, and what what will happen is, like, we'll help customers in Texas and Florida, and then they'll call us, or not call us, but put in something through the app, like, hey, can you help me in Indianapolis? Because they've had a great experience. And so we'll help, like, existing customers. Like, we're not really focused on like other markets right now we don't want to overextend ourselves and we're like we really do want to nail every job that comes through and so that's why we're focused on those two key markets yeah yeah i think that's a a good strategy the uh how many how many jobs would you say a week are coming through these days work orders uh growing to about what 30 to 40 but a week right now yeah and it's uh like we hired uh we hired a couple sales our first sales people they started in mid-september uh one here in florida one in texas and so it's starting to grow and ramp up how um how much does it cost for a customer to enroll in <laughs> zero the technician zero so you're taking the same stance that Uber and Lyft have taken. We're going to provide our service for nothing. But I'm telling you that we want to make money on the transaction yeah, after the transaction is completed. Correct. It's yeah. It's just simple. Like we didn't, <clears throat> as you can imagine, in this industry something new there's not a lot of new ideas and so you know that was important like let's not create friction uh cut let's just show customers the best experience for ordering field service deliver it to them and then we invoice them for the service and same thing for technicians like why create friction you know there there are plenty of independent technicians working in the markets today they have a book of business like why create friction to to start doing jobs through heave like let's just make it let's show technicians uh the the amount of open jobs have them opt into a job and then you know the when they do a job then we get involved yeah do you do you have testimonials yet to the point that you can have them up on the website from customers and technicians? We do, yeah. So we've been launching some. Like we did a we did a testimonial video here for a, a good sized customer in Tampa. He, uh, I've been trying to pin him down for a little while to quantify 
what using our app has meant for his business and finally held him down. We, we looked at, we looked at his books and he's on pace to save $500,000 this year by using our app for service. To make. What's that? To make an additional 500. He'll save $500,000. His maintenance. He's on pace to save 500 grand on maintenance compared to last year. So roughly 40,000 a month. How many machines in his fleet? I think he's got uh 60 to 70. Like if you if you factor in so that's like one of the unique things about us is that yeah we really can be a one-stop shop. So like we'll we'll work on his on-highway stuff. So they'll put through Peterbilt's and Kenworth trucks uh in addition to his machinery. And so when you add it all up. Yeah, to me that's you know the <laughs> We've, we've got the general practitioner in medicine, which is what I submit is the first place for heave with technician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've got specialists that you're going to start recognizing and customers will start recognizing. There's some guys that are spectacular on certain things, and that's going to start changing the wages and the priorities and all the rest of the stuff. So it it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing. The, well, and you touched I, uh, on it. You touched on it earlier. I mean, you were saying how um, dealers can only work on their brand. And so that's a major differentiator. So by, by, by being independent, the nature of being independent, you have to be willing to work on everything. You have to be uh, capable. Like I don't think you could exist or have a a great uh, book of business. If you were an independent, you're like, you know what? I'm just going to work on Kamatsu. Uh you have a much smaller pool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what these individuals are um, are good at. So go up further in your helicopter. You started out trying to facilitate the sales transaction through the internet, we have a, we have a which yes. worked, but didn't get the kind of action that you were looking for. So you shifted over to technicians. What's next? We... Uh, we're not going to become distracted. <laughs> there is so much ability uh, and opportunity just within service. Yeah, we'll we'll introduce like little things here or there, but yeah, we have a very unique opportunity to be the nationwide heavy equipment service provider. So that's a that's a big opportunity. I mean, we don't we don't have ge- geographic territory lines we don't have constraints like a typical dealer would have you know i don't know what are the 35 cat dealers in north america or 30 or 37 who knows i mean there were there were 38 volvo dealers when i worked in that network across you have territory lines you can't go outside of those we don't have such a thing so we can be the nationwide heavy equipment service provider for all brands and i think that's big enough to uh to take yeah, all of our I, attention. I, no, I, I agree. I just wanted to put out in the air that you're focused on something and you're, you're not going to get distracted from it. Just as an update <laughs> to you, I think Caterpillar's latest number is 17 for North America. Oh, is it really 17? Yeah. yeah, there's two in Canada already. When, when I was there, there was 10. <laughs> there's two Volvo dealers in Canada now. Um, there's one Hitachi dealer across the country. There's one John Deere dealer across the country, not including ag. 
Um, it's a very, very different world. And as the dealers become bigger <laughs> in size and smaller in number, their financial statements mislead them because their sales are going up. They feel comfortable. But it's because their competition is shrunking. Yes. And that is a bad thing for the customer, ultimately. Big and time. we all know. And, and look, customers aren't dumb. Customers know that if dealers become larger with bigger footprints, then they are going to become more out of touch, more so than they already are. And the customer experience will continue to deteriorate because guess who doesn't use technology? <laughs> well, the other side of it is customer retention. You know, I, I do a lot of work with data analytics and artificial intelligence, and I've, I've been pounding the, the table for customer retention for 40 years and people still don't even measure it. No. And changes in buying patterns aren't acknowledged and mystery shopping to identify the customer service issues has almost disappeared. There's very few people that do that anymore. And it, the whole, whole thing becomes, how can I fool myself into feeling, how can I make myself feel better? You know? Yeah. You know, I would argue, um, that the reason why, in my opinion, is that dealers have never had to fight for service business. They've never had any real competition. So, like, what are you going to measure? Like, what are you going to like? They've that, and that's why I think the existing experience is what it is. Like, to me, the customer's service decision is kind of made when they purchase the machine, uh, and you know. So that's what we're hoping to change by giving an alternative. Yeah, but that's just when you when you have a monopoly on something, uh, there's no incentive to innovate. There's no incentive to improve, and the experience but, is what it let's, is. Let's take that premise, and that we don't have to fight for service, and the customer makes a decision on service when he buys a new machine. Mm -hmm. The new machine per year is probably less than fifteen percent of the total working population. The second owner is not owned at all by the dealership. Mm -hmm. When the customer sells a machine, perhaps at an auction, who takes control of the second machine owner? Nobody. Right. So now we're waiting for, and it's coming, real serious competition on replacement parts. Because you take the replacement parts away from the channel, now you've got the manufacturer's attention because that's the only place they make money. Right. And when they start losing money, which has happened in the past at different anomalies in the marketplace, uh, it's, it's not a happy circumstance. So we end up with the big guys in mining, Komatsu, Caterpillar, Hitachi, mm -hmm. the big guys in the large equipment size, add John Deere and perhaps some others out Volvo out there. So you got four or five in the mining large then as you come down the number of competitors changes and then you, as you get to the small light industrial it's it's maybe 30 to 50 different so we've got 50 people in the supply chain on the small maybe 25 in the medium maybe 10 in the large and three in the super that's what we're dealing with if you look at automotive when they went that way with general motors ford and chrysler all of a sudden, Japan and Germany became number one, number two market share people. 
It's and we're we're going to see that kind of disruption here. The Chinese, Sani, Weidong, etc. Um, they're they're there. They've got good equipment. They just don't have distribution. Correct. If I was signing Weigong, I'd make a deal with you guys. Do, do, uh, all, do all of our prep uh, for delivery. We don't want mechanics. You've got them. It would make a lot of sense. I mean, it is hard to be to build a dealer network from scratch. It's better to buy it. I've been saying that for a long time. By the way, I gave you a hint, you know. I know. You know, it's funny. Like, uh, yeah, we'll see how things play out. Like, we're open to it. We're open to the – I've had certain other companies uh, express interest who maybe aren't OEMs but offer services. And so they need mechanics to either install or be on site for delivery or – so there there are things in the works there. Uh, but, yeah, it would make a lot of sense for yeah, OEMs. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty tickled with what you, what you've done and your success. So keep it up; it's wonderful. It's it's very rare, you know. You know, I'm a, a bit of an anomaly. I'm I'm never particularly happy with the results I see. I've never been that way, and I'm always looking over the hill. And my I wrote wrote a blog this week. I don't know if you saw it about the changes in learning, where my granddaughter gave me a book called The Narrative Gym Gymnasium that deals in three words, and, but, and therefore. And if you look at the English language and you throw pronouns away, but is the most commonly used word in our language. And it's the only word we have that allows us to contradict ourselves. <laughs> I love you to death, but it's a great idea, but, and, and, and here we go. And then my grand, my daughter, <clears throat> who's a teacher here in California, on has a, a new approach to life called AVID, which advance, advancement by individual determination, which means each kid essentially drives their own progress. So whatever their potential is, it's up to them make, to make a difference. And the book that she brought to me this couple of weeks ago or 10 days ago is a thing called Ruthless Equity where we have not approached life situations, problems, relationships. Honestly, we've made them into little partitions, which is exactly what the dealership OEM relationship has done. It's partitioned the market. It's not necessarily promoting their benefits as the reason to purchase. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's the negatives of the competitors. Right. They don't have this. They don't have that. They don't have the other thing. Yeah. Fear based. So, so they're they're segmenting the market not based on a true preference. You know, it, it's it's kind of a, a a weird perspective which took me by surprise. So you know, all men are created equal. Is baloney. We are, but society, as soon as we get going, if you're poor. You got one channel, you're colored, you got another channel, you're of a certain religious persuasion, you got another channel. And we we pander to those different channels rather than to the universe. You're pandering to the universe, the OAM dealers are pandering to a sector, a segment. Mm -hmm. And and that's destined to fail. Bookstores in North America almost gone. Amazon replaced them. Bookstores are very prominent still in Europe. Interesting. 
That is interesting. Because it's a different relationship in a bookstore in Europe than it is here. There was a, a, a store I went to in Durango, Colorado, uh, down in the southwest corner, where they had couches and easy chairs. And you could take a new book off the shelf and sit down and read the whole damn book and then leave without buying it. Hmm. It was an incredibly popular bookstore. So, you know, for a guy like me who doesn't know whether he's going to like a book or not, give me 50 pages, I know. So let me read that much and go away. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you whether I want to buy it or not. You got the same thing. I got a taste treat. I have a repair or a maintenance job. Uh, let's see if there's somebody at Heave that can do it as a taste treat. And son of a gun, they did. And it replicates. Mm -hmm. And it starts growing exponentially if you let it get ahead of yourself. So what do your technicians need most now? As they get busier, as they work on more brands, as they don't have to worry about getting business next week, mm -hmm. what's their biggest need? I don't know. You know, it's something that we're learning. It, I, I've been wrong about certain things. Uh, I can't imagine. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, everyone is different. Everyone has different motivations. Like when I say I've been wrong about certain things, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like my initial assumption was, you know, getting back to the original, uh, the blog post for this conversation is, you know, these guys are way underpaid. Um, and so by being independent, they're making 3x more on average, sometimes 4x more. Uh, and so my assumption was, man, if we just keep some of these guys busy, fill their calendar, you know, show them 15, 20 jobs a month, they can make like 250, 300 grand a year. Uh, and I found that there's plenty of technicians who don't want that, you know, now by making, by making three X more, they're like, Hey, all I have to do is work 20 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. I still come out ahead and I have a better quality of life. Um, so, you know, it, we really do have this set up as heave can be whatever you want it to be as a technician. We do have guys who uh, will do 15 jobs in a month and like our, you know, they, a, a customer request comes through, they respond right away and they're trying to, they're getting a new job every day. Uh, then we have other technicians who probably use it, who use heave as like backfill. So they'll do three, four jobs a month. Uh, it doesn't, you know, maybe, you know, we have certain ones who will just take welding jobs. We have certain ones who just want to do X type of job. So it really is like, I mean, to answer your question, it really depends on the individual and that's what we're learning. Uh, but that's why we've set it up the way we did, where you have to opt into a job and whatever you want it to be is what it can be. You, so you we do have people who are going to make over 200 grand this year, which is awesome. I just thought there'd be more financially driven uh, that way. Actually, what's happened since COVID much more markedly than anything else I've ever seen is people's quality of life and quality of work have become primary drivers. <laughs> Except for me. Well, <laughs> you're not interested in quality of life or you've always had it? Uh, uh, no, I mean... Uh, my work, the, the what do people say? work life balance? Mine has shifted <laughs> in the Which opposite way? direction, uh, to uh, more of work. <laughs> That's not a good thing, my friend. Well, but, hey, I mean, it's the path that I chose, right? You start something from zero, it's you can't be, you know, clocking out at 
4.30, right? Yeah, it's funny. We had a, a client yesterday who's had a problem with classes with students with the software. And uh, we found a solution at 7 o'clock last night, which is 10 o'clock back east, and got a response on the email almost instantly. And I said, wait a second, what's going on? She said, well, I like what I'm doing, and I want to do that. Blah, blah. And I said, well, balance your life, kid. you gotta, you know, you got to look at it a little differently. Mm-hmm. And, and and you need to remember that too. The uh, so go back to your guys. Mm-hmm. It doesn't surprise me that they're not after the two three hundred thousand. What they want is consistency, so that they can yes. choose what their life is going to look like. And that leadership, the consistency is: I own you, and you're going to work twelve hours a day, mm-hmm. maybe six days a week. And to the customer, the backlog's still two weeks. Yes. And the shops are still single shift because we don't want to work double shifts. Right. It's plenty of dealers restrict overtime. Yep. It's it's a, a real interesting place. And as you look around, look at appliances, home appliances. Remember the Maytag man? Yes. We've got two appliances here washers and dryer they're completely computer driven anything that goes wrong we get a message on the machine Mm -hmm. in an audio and it tells us what we need to do so there is you know if i call to get somebody ah, they're 200 miles away Mm -hmm. i got my suitcase was damaged coming over from hawaii this time and the locks are destroyed the nearest repair shop is 150 miles away You know, so all of these things that's happened, it's we're we're trying to make money on the back of the support of the product that people sell. Mm-hmm. And there is not enough money in the prime product to justify that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right to repair. Is that, you know, you got into trouble, I think, with part of that at a while, didn't you? Uh, I don't know. If, no, I don't think we got in trouble. I think um, it's funny. We're on the opposite side of seems to be most people. <laughs> but I just I think it's insane to to try to argue with a straight face against right to repair. Um, like you're you're telling the customers that they don't have the right to get it fixed where they want to. They they can't determine that that is insane. That's well, insane. it's also that you can't do it yourself, right? You know, it's it's uh, it, it's remarkable, and you know, warranty reimbursement. There's a checkerboard across the country as to what the reimbursement rates are. State law dictates you got to repair, you know, got to pay retail rates. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's it's kind of a, a, a funny. We're in a hell of a transition, Alex. I know. It's uh, and it's not certain to me where this is going to end up. I'm not sure that dealers are going to exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think everything goes through an evolution, and the consumer usually wins. Um, and over time, yes. The uh, and dealers have held out very, you know, for a long time, and I'm sure that that's why a lot of them still view things the same way, right? Well, we've we've been we've been in this position for so long, and nothing will ever change. But we know plenty of other industries. Like, tell that to the cable co- to cable companies. <laughs> Right, I'm sure they didn't think anything would change. Well, yeah, look it's... at Disney, where you are. Mm-hmm. They're in in trouble these days. Look how much they charge for a day at Disney World. Yeah, it's insane. 
And how about a family of four? It's kind of like going to a sports event, you know, a, a football game. Uh, we used to watch tennis here. We had one of the best tennis tournaments in the world. We had seats that were six to eight feet off or rose off the court. Which which event was that? Indian Wells? Yeah. Yeah, from the very beginning, we we I used to teach tennis, and so I've always been interested. And a lot of folks that I worked and play with out here are tennis players, and you know it was it was remarkable. Back, you know, we're we're talking Sampras in earlier, mm. um, and you know you're you're 15 feet away from them on the court. For goodness' sake, it's right. it's remarkable. However, you know, go get two seats at Wimbledon or French Open or Australian Open or. U.S. Open, it's impossible today for normal people. So here, you know, here we go again. I, if you if you think back, the first mechanic I've always said was the blacksmith. He worked on horseshoes and he worked on swords. Mm-hmm. Now you could also say he was the OEM because he made the sword and he also made the horseshoe. Mm-hmm. But if you say that was a hundred percent market share. Because there really was only one guy in a in a village. Mm-hmm. Today there's hundreds of guys. We had a, I think it was called elite in a material handling world in Ontario, where the guys that were paid above what the wage scale was, the only way we could live with it was to increase the wage, but let them be independent contractors, so that we didn't screw up everything salary and wage wise. Which is again another consideration inside an OEM that you don't have to play with. Correct. Yeah. I mean, like, I think what I write about, I include in there because we have personal experience with is the the world of software engineers, you know, developers, you know, highly skilled. Like I equate, I think there's a lot of similarities between soft, software developers and the diesel mechanics that we're talking about. Highly skilled. Uh, why, why has there been such a movement in our society for parents to get their kids involved in coding and you know why it's two reasons because there's a high demand uh and because it pays really well and so like i could i don't think uh, a lot of parents would be teaching their kids to code if hey yeah the wage is 35 dollars an hour or 40 dollars an hour like it is for you know heavy duty diesel mechanics right and so like why do we continue saying the same thing you know it would if uh that's where look at independence independent mechanics basically make what um high-end software engineers make that's with the market yeah so you know that i took a minor in computer science back in the 60s which meant that i was wiring unit record equipment <laughs> and you also know that that's what i wanted to do as a career but in 68 69 when i came out there really wasn't a lot of opportunity and I think you also know that there was a guy by the name of Ian Sharp who had a programming language that dealt with arrays as far as code. And I was on the internet with him in 1971, where there was nobody out there. It was just governments, financial institutions, etc. He sold his business to Reuters. Reuters sold the software side of the business to Bloomberg. So what Bloomberg is offering today with the terminal, Ian had 50 years ago. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't it, though? So if you look at that transition of 50 years, um, I'm going to say the tipping point on labor. You know, I I was talking with Ed Gordon yesterday, the fellow that talks about job shock and, and says that 
50% of the American workforce won't have skills to be employable by 2030. He said it's mm-hmm. almost to the point he doesn't see it being recoverable anymore. It's, it's that the society is going in such a way that it's gone so fast, so far, the wrong way. And educators are doing it. It's the same thing you're talking about, software engineers. If you find a good technology officer or information officer, those boys are half a million bucks a a copy. Mm -hmm. And they're worth every penny. I don't know that I found a, and I've worked with some pretty talented technicians, but I don't think I found anybody over 300 grand. No. And that's ridiculous because today, with the complication of a machine, Anybody who doesn't think that a technician is the smartest person in their employ is nuts. Well, that's the thing. Like, oh, there's a difference between what dealers say and then what they do because they they say that they tell you that they say, "Hey, the most important people in this whole building are these people." Then why do salespeople make three hundred, four hundred grand, and these technicians make eighty? <laughs> yeah, I think it's purely economic. They don't know how to change the balance of, of that switch. I, you know, I don't know that I want to change the the equipment side of the equation, but some dealers now aren't paying commission to a salesman who replaces one of their brands. They're only paying a commission when you displace a competitor. That's interesting. I'm not. I've not heard of that. Oh, it's it's uh, that's been around 10, 15 years in some places. They were way the hell and gone ahead. Now they pay a lot of money. When you displace a competitor. Now, doesn't that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm taking it away from George and I'm getting it all. And if you think about a technician is roughly $500,000 a year and 200,000 labor, 300,000 parts. And I'm being gentle. uh, Hello. Mm -hmm. The problem, as you say, though, is there's a cost component to it. And the biggest problem is management. Leadership. Yes. I got into consulting because I'm not good at politics and I don't like babysitting. And and that was the primary job that I had. Politics, trying to get things done, changed, etc. You've Mm -hmm. heard the story, I'm sure, that I told you when I was hired at Finning and we went fishing for three days. Yes. It's nuts. You know, what would you like to change that'll make a lot of money? You know, okay, we get together, we get it done. Now, let's see you do it. And they didn't think I could. I mean, they're nuts. Mm-hmm. Same thing with you. I, You know, so fine. We got 30 guys regularly, 30 work orders, whatever. Mm-hmm. In the next three months, it'll be 50, 60. And right. nobody's going to get attention. You're not even a blip on the radar yet. No. I wonder what the number is in Florida and Texas, if that's your two competitive points, before somebody says, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. We got a very large dealer and a small dealer in Texas, Caterpillar. We have one primary Komatsu dealer in the north and one in the south in Texas. Mm-hmm. We've got one primary John Deere dealer in the whole state in Texas. Mm-hmm. The Volvo dealer has just been purchased by Portugal. There's, yep. to my mind, only one there. I mean, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's the hottest market in the country. It is. Without question. Florida's not far behind. Nope. 
Well, congratulations, young man. I think we beat this thing up. I, I keep writing those things. It gets people's attention. It'll be interesting to see what kind of hit we get on this. Yeah, it's probably not going to be very popular, but... <laughs> I don't, I, you know, quite frankly, popularity isn't what I'm looking for. I want provocation. Uh, I got gotcha. you. Well, this one, this one will check those boxes. But look, it, it's true. Um, there's no other. There's no other reason for it. Everyone kind of knows it. They just won't say it. Uh, so here we go. Yeah. Anything you want to say in closing? No, I appreciate uh, the opportunity as always, and I appreciate um, you know you staying on me to to provide the content. <laughs> I I have been known to be a pain in the butt, but uh, you know, thank thank you, Alex. This is always refreshing to me when I find people that think out of the box and and try and approach life differently. And I hope everybody who's listened to this candid conversation feels the same way. I. I, I give you a huge thank you very much and I look forward to the next one. You got it. Mahalo, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate your support. Should you have any thoughts or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at www.learningwithoutscars.com. The time is now. Mahalo.